Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Sharissa Fong. Let us begin with prayer, and then we'll get into our subject this morning. Our loving Father in heaven, what a wonderful day it is to come together to worship you and to be blessed by just being together in your presence and in prayer. Lord, as we were just reminded, it is a wonderful thing to be able to sail to heaven's shore with Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we study again the life of Elijah today, that there will be something for each of us in this message, that you would strengthen us as we look at his life and how you strengthened him. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave today strengthened in our own faith to go and look for those who you are bringing into our paths. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to John. John chapter 15 and notice with me verse 4. They're the words of Jesus. They're in red in my Bible. John chapter 15 verse 4. The Bible says, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you, unless you abide in me. And I'll read verse 5 as well. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Now, the word abide, if you've ever read uh, the book of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you'll know he has a favorite word, and it's this word right here, abide. He says it over and over again. And that word comes from a Greek verb, meno, which means to stay. To stay in what? What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to stay in a connected relationship with him. In fact, notice this lovely quote from the Spirit of Prophecy. It says, if we abide in Christ... If the love of God dwells in the heart, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions will be in harmony with the will of God. Do you want that to be true of your life? I know that that's what I want in my own life. And if that's what I want, then it's not enough for me to just casually abide with Jesus and at least come and abide with him at a prayer conference and then go away and do my own thing. If I want this kind of connected relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then I need to stay with him 24-7 because he just said to me, without me, you can do nothing. And if there was ever a man who knew the truth of this statement, it was Elijah. And if you want to follow along in your Bibles in our theme story today, we're going to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'll be putting them on the screen as well. 1 Kings chapter 19, notice with me the beginning of his story here in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. 
When Ahab's chariot pulled into his palace driveway there in Jezreel that night, he jumped out of it and ran for the front door of his palace. By the time he got there, he was dripping wet. And when he got inside the palace entrance, he was met by a very excited Jezebel. What took you so long? Where have you been? Why, where's that crazy Tishbite now? All day long, Jezebel had been home waiting for him. Whether or not she had seen the fire fall from heaven, the Bible doesn't say, but she knew that something had happened that day on Mount Carmel. After all, it was raining again, hadn't rained for three and a half years. And so Ahab, still dripping wet from his chariot ride home in the drenching rain and vowing to buy a convertible chariot for all future wet weather engagements, he began to tell her the amazing story. He told her of Elijah's compelling invitation on Mount Carmel. How long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He told her of the contest. He said, sweetheart, believe me, the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, they chanted every prayer in the book and nothing worked. But the moment the last prayerful word left Elijah's lips, fire fell from heaven with this clap of terrific thunder. I mean, I wish you could have seen it. One moment there was the sacrifice on an altar drenched in water and the next there was just this burnt black spot on the ground with a wisp of smoke curling up from it. He said, when we saw this, we all just gasped. We we couldn't talk. Nobody could talk for a while. And when we found our breath, he said, the people started to shout the Lord. He is God. The Lord, he is God. I have never experienced something like this in all my life. Well, Jezebel was stunned speechless. That was not what she expected to hear when her husband walked in the door that night. But as Ahab continued, and he told her how Elijah had also had all of her favorite prophets slaughtered as part of his little revival, well, her eyes flashed fire and she was livid beside herself with rage. Without even waiting to hear the end of Ahab's account, she was on her laptop writing an email to Elijah telling him what she thought about him. But the internet was down because of all the rain. And so she screamed for a messenger who came running at top speed. And she sent via that messenger express post a death threat to the prophet clad in camel hair who had had the nerve to defy her faith and her father so shamelessly and so publicly. Her dad was the high priest of Baalism, I told you yesterday. And also he was the king of the Sidonians. Now I want to pause right here and just think for a moment. She sent a messenger to Elijah. Why didn't she just send a hitman? Why does she go and send him a message to warn him? Here's what I think's going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, Satan is watching Elijah. He knows that Elijah is God's man. And he also knows that because of this, he could not touch him. And so Satan does through Jezebel the only thing that he could do, and that was he couldn't touch him, but he could threaten his life. And he knows the human psyche all too well. Remember what he said uh, to God of Job, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. 
And so he was there behind the scenes trying to get at God's prophet. Meanwhile, a weary Elijah, emotionally spent and just completely physically exhausted from his 24-kilometer marathon down the mountain to the palace at chariot speed. Do you remember that? He ran in front of the chariot of the king. He's exhausted, and he is now lying down just outside Jezreel that night. And when he put his head to the pillow, if there was a pillow, his, he was just so happy with what God had done. His heart was just overflowing. It had been a wonderful day. And he was convinced that the now converted king would go in and he would tell the queen how things would be. And this would be the greatest revival and reformation that the church had ever seen. It was just the dawning of a new day. But here's where he went a little bit wrong because you should never, ever assume that you know what a woman is thinking. <laughs> All right, verse, verse 3 of 1 Kings 19. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, life is full of uncertainties. Things come at us from all sorts of different angles. But had Elijah continued to remain in an abiding connected relationship with the Lord. He should have turned his eyes to the Lord at this time and said, oh God, please help me, right? And I believe that God would have come through for him if he did that. After all, delivering his people has been the consuming passion of our God for as long as the human race has existed. Notice what 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, that includes Australia, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. But instead of putting his eyes on the Lord, he set his sights on a getaway and far away. He reminds me too at this point of a conversation that I had between me and this boy that took me to our year 12 formal when I was, you know, last year of high school, and the boys asked all the girls out to go to this formal. And the boy that took me to the formal was a really nice boy. He was also a very shy boy, and um, he didn't have a license. So his dad drove us to the formal and then drove us back. And I remember on the way home, we had a nice evening. I mean, the formal was nice. I didn't go to an Adventist school. I went to a Christian high school. And on my way coming home, as uh, we were getting closer to my house, I just thought something special might happen tonight because, you know, he has asked me for the pleasure of my company. Um, and he might have maybe a rose that he'll give me as I leave the car. Maybe he had a, a box of chocolates under the seat or something. I don't know. I just expected something special to happen. After all, you know, usually in a movie when people are in situations like this, <laughs> things, special things happen. So I thought, okay, this is it. And sure enough, we pulled into the driveway. His dad um, parked the car. And then uh, the guy turned to me in the back seat and he said, well, have a good life. <laughs> That was it. Because <laughs> as far as he was concerned, we were never going to see each other again. And, and I guess I'm reminded of this when I come to this story because Elijah gets to Beersheba Station. 
That's what the Bible says. He gets to Beersheba station. He turns to his servant. And the Hebrew word for servant here is na'ah, which indicates most definitely that the servant was a young person, probably a young man who followed Elijah up to Mount Carmel, watched him there and thought, I want to grow up and be just like him. And he gets to Beersheba station and he turns to his servant and he leaves him there. He basically says, have a good life because he's done. He's not coming back as far as Elijah is concerned. I think at this point, the words of this Scottish pastor would be wise for us to remember. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. It's kind of pathetic when we stop and think about what we're talking about here because he who had stood alone and fearless on top of Mount Carmel before 850 false prophets and the king of Israel, he who had at his word not a drop of rain had fallen for three and a half years, he who was one of the mightiest of the prophets, it's pathetic that he should just crumble and run at the word of one angry woman. It's pathetic, right? In fact, maybe it was even this story that inspired Solomon to write, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. <laughs> I heard that, Pastor David. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we can smile at the cowardice of God's prophet, but the sad reality is that many times we are also caught reacting to life's circumstances and to life situations in exactly the same way. In fact, even as I was preparing this message, at the time when I was writing this message, I got an email from somebody and it was accusing me of things I knew was not true. I knew it, but it accused me of all of these things and I let that email eat me up for a whole week. I would go to bed and when I was in bed, I would dream about it. When I wake up in the morning, I'd wake up and it was the very first thing on my mind. It just, it just made me want to run like Elijah as well. Has it ever happened to you? A church member offends us, and so we run and want out. A friend criticizes our faith, and so we'd rather compromise. Sometimes things happen to us in our experience. We get troubled by Jezebels in our life. We stop coming to church, we stop praying, we stop spending time in, with Jesus, and we stop believing that God can help us. And I wonder, as we read the story, how many of God's people today are sitting on the sidelines because a Jezebel has troubled them. 1 Kings 19 verse 4. But he himself, the Bible says, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am, I am no better than my father's. Sometimes, as Christians, we think we can brave the storms on a thousand seas, and then we go and drown in the bathtub. Morris Fenden said that. Ironically, Elijah begs God to take his life while running from the one person on the face of the planet who would have gladly taken it for him. He saw his ministry as a failure. He saw Carmel as fruitless, and so his song had changed. It wasn't take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It was take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to me. Poor Elijah. Until now, the spirit of prophecy tells us, and I quote, the word of faith and power was upon his lips, 
and his whole life was devoted to the work of reform. But I am so glad that this story's in the Bible because I relate to Elijah here in the wilderness. I find here in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't all hero. He was human too. And right here we see him caught in the backwash of his own victory, guilty of believing his own press. Right now, Elijah's running in fear. And sometimes we too can run in fear as well. Fear of failure keeps us back from going forward. But praise God, whenever we are afraid, God has a solution for us. He says, fear not. And then he gives you the greatest reason why. For I am with you. And when we are found safely abiding in Christ, we can even say with the psalmist, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, can, I will fear how much? No evil, for you are with me. I love the story, uh, Kim Shearer, she's a Christian author. She writes how one night she was putting her young son, Ryan, to sleep and a storm broke and there was a terrific clap of thunder and she thought, as she'd walked away, she thought, he's probably going to be scared. And so she walked back into the room and he said to her, mommy, would you please stay with me until I fall asleep? She said, sure, darling, I'll, I'll stay here. And so she sat by his bed and watched him fall asleep. And it hit her. He had not asked for her to take the storm away. He had simply asked for her to stay with him as the storm passed by. And may that be our prayer as well. When the storms of life are raging, may our prayer be, Lord, please stand by me. Help me weather this storm that I'm going through. Verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Two meals from an angel. Uh, I haven't got the quote there. I'll read it to you here. Here's a quote from the Review and Herald, October 16, 1930. I just love this. Did God forsake Elijah? Oh no. He loved him no less when he felt forsaken of God and man than when in answer to his prayer, fire flashed from heaven and illuminated the mountaintop. As Elijah slept, a soft touch and a pleasant voice awoke him. He started up in terror as if to flee, fearing that the enemy had discovered him. But the pitying face bending over him was not the face of an enemy, but of a friend. That's better than any Facebook friend. This friend was right there with him when he needed him the most. And friends, I would like to submit to you today that I think that the journeys that many of you are taking right now, they're too great for you as well. The journey was too great for Elijah. Perhaps the journey you're on is too great for you. The health crisis that you're facing it's too great for you. The, the trouble you face in your family, it's too great for you. 
the, the, the trials that are coming your way, the journey is too great for you. But guess what? Jesus does not expect for us to find the strength within ourselves to face these things. He invites us to begin each day as Elijah began this one. And he says, arise and eat. Eat, find my promises for you here. I will strengthen you. I will sustain you and I will bring you through. That was an amen moment. <laughs> All right. Verse eight. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. For 40 days and 40 nights. That's biblical lingo for a very long time. Elijah runs clear across the desert in the strength of this food. Friends, when God blesses a meal, it can last you 40 minutes or 40 days with his blessing on it. And every step that Elijah took was painful for him. His feet were heavy. Every ray of scorching sun that shone upon him, he construed to be a catastrophe. Every wind that blew was unfair. It was a very depressing walk and run. And when he gets to the place that he finally ends up at, he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is a mountain that we've met before in the Bible because you may remember it. It is also known as Mount Sinai. Here is the same mountain where Moses had seen the burning bush. It was here that he spoke face to face with God. He'd seen the pattern of the sanctuary, received the Ten Commandments. This was the holiest place that Elijah could think of. And my question, why did he run here? Well, we can cross one thing out. We know he didn't run all this way to hide because you can't hide from God, but even if you could, this would be the first place he would look. This is God's mountain, the holy mountain of God. So why has he come here? Elijah has come here, I believe, because he is on the, break of a brink, he's on the brink of a breakdown and he knew it. He has come here to have an audience with God. He needs to hear God's voice again. He needs to be filled. And so he comes to this place, but praise God, you and I don't have to run here to Stuart's point every time we need to hear the voice of God. We don't have to wait for the next prayer conference before we can hear the voice of God. God will meet us wherever we are. The moment we turn to him, the moment we reach out for him. Remember the story of the prodigal son. The moment he turned around and started home, the father was coming to meet him. And so, verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? While cowering in his cave on holy ground, having his own little pity party, the voice, the word of the Lord comes to him and God confronts Elijah with a question that is pregnant with meaning. What are you? My chosen servant for these days whom I have honored and blessed. What are you doing here in this desolate wasteland away from your duty when I am prepared and preparing to complete a great revival among my people? What are you doing here, Elijah? Your very name rebukes you. Elijah means the Lord is my God. What have you done with the Lord who is your God? And you look at the story of Elijah and you think how much more God could have said. <laughs> I mean, everywhere he had gone, he had gone because the word of the Lord told him to go there. At the word of the Lord, he had gone to the brook Cherith. 
At the word of the Lord, he had gone to find the widow of Zarephath. At the word of the Lord, he'd even called Ahab to come to him. But God never sent him here. And so notice his response to God, verse 10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Elijah's response is telling. This is the response that he has been rehearsing over that 40-day journey. And like a fisherman whose fish stories just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger with each fresh retelling, so too Elijah has magnified his problems and minimized his God. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever felt like Elijah? I'm the only one in this church. I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one in my school. I'm the only one in my class. Nobody understands what I am going through. And you're right, maybe nobody does. Sometimes standing for God makes us feel like we're standing alone. I like the story. I heard of a farmer who had a a neighbor who was always negative. The farmer was a Christian man. And when the sun came out, he would say, praise the Lord, he sent us the sun so the crops will grow. And his negative neighbor would say, oh, if it keeps shining like that, it will burn the crops. And then when it rained, the farmer would say, praise the Lord, he sent us the rain. And the negative neighbor would say, oh, if it keeps raining, it will drown the crops. So it's just always negative. One day, this Christian farmer thought, okay, I'm going to try and do something. I want to do something so I can reach my neighbor. And he had this idea. He said, I'll teach my dog to walk on water. Not true story, okay? Anyway, he taught his dog to walk on water. And one day they're out on the lake and uh, they were duck hunting. I don't know why they do that. This is a story. They're duck hunting on the lake and the farmer, he raised his rifle, shot a duck that flew over. The duck fell down and he said to his dog, go get him. So the dog jumped out of the boat, ran over on the water, picked up the duck and came back to the boat. Nothing wet. He walked on water, came back. Only his feet were just the paws of his feet jumps in the boat and he says to his negative neighbor, so what do you think about that? And the neighbor says, can't swim, can he? (laughs) Sometimes, you know, we feel like that. (laughs) Everything is just a catastrophe, like Elijah. Everything is just bad. But listen, when we hear ourselves thinking like that, when we start sounding like that negative neighbor, we need to remember who our God is. And listen to this quote right here. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. Perhaps like Elijah, you've been in a wilderness hiding in a cave. Perhaps you feel like him. God wants to remind you of his strength and he wants to invite you to rely fully upon him. Then he said, verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. 
They don't teach theology like this at Avondale or Andrews. God turns nature into the preacher. He basically asks Elijah to consider this question, can I not be trusted to take care of you and to bless your ministry? Jezebel's threat should be as insignificant to you as the buzz of a mosquito is to you and I at a picnic. I feel like reminding Elijah, we all might feel like it, Elijah, you are serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who he doesn't need a sermon from you. Right now he needs you to surrender to him. And as I sit there and I'm reading the story, I realize that's what God is trying to say to Sharissa. That's what God's trying to remind me. Sharissa, you need to trust God more. Why? Because my life, I mean, look at what James says. My life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away, but he is God. He is the creator God. He has always been. There is nothing that is too hard for him. And so this is why he needed to be reminded right here, as do we all that it is not by might nor by power but by his spirit by my spirit says the Lord of hosts God could have done so many things to try and communicate to Elijah to trust him I mean remember he split the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through on dry ground that's amazing. I mean, when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the mountain quaked, the presence of God, the presence of God was there. I mean, he led his people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire at night and kept them warm and a cloud by day to give them shade. God could do amazing things. But sometimes we need to be reminded that it's the little things. It's not always the most learned presentation of God's truth that convicts and converts the soul. Not by eloquence or logic are men's hearts reached, but by the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit, which operate quietly, yet surely in transforming and developing character. It is the still, small voice of the Spirit of God that has power to change the heart. Many people today think that the only place they can find God is in the biggest church with the loudest music and the brightest lights. But I would like to submit to you that God is always found in the quietness of a trusting heart that chooses to simply abide in Him. Amen. Elijah got a glimpse of what we can enjoy every day when we come into God's presence and we hear him speaking to us through his word. And this also reminds me that the work of conversion, the work of changing people's lives, that's not my job, that's God's job. And I uh, just wanted to remind you, I've heard some wonderful stories here as we're praying for people as well, but in our church, there was a couple, they've now passed away, but there was a couple, they were in their 90s, uh, 90 and 91 husband and wife. And when they got married 70 years before he was finally baptized, his, the husband said to his wife, don't you, don't you try to make me a Seventh-day Adventist. So she said, I won't. And she prayed for him for 70 years. 70 years later, um, your dad, <laughs> Pastor Price, he baptized him as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Uh, that's the power of prayer. That's the power of what God can do in a person's heart. And so I encourage us to keep praying for our loved ones, to keep praying because God is in the business of changing lives and he is working. Verse 13, so it was when Elijah heard it, 
that still small voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, in the early years of the Advent movement, there was a man by the name of J.N. Loughborough, a young minister, one of our pioneers, and he became so depressed with the church work and ministry, he actually left the ministry and became a carpenter. And there's nothing wrong with carpentry, but God had a call on this man's life. Uh, the reason why he went is because his wife was always upset that he wasn't home enough because the church was in its infancy. There was a lot of problems. And so he was always out trying to sort them out. And the wage of a pastor was not set in those days. So it was hard to keep food on the table. There were all these pressures that got to him. And so he becomes a carpenter. Well, one day as he is in his carpentry workshop, Working away, he hears the sound of a sleigh pull up outside. And as he looks out the window, he sees, ah, Ellen White had come to pay him a visit. So he wipes his hands and he walks out the door. And the moment she saw him, she said to him in the good King James, what doest thou here, Elijah? <laughs> he was a little bit startled and not really happy with that greeting. So he continued to come toward her and make it another greeting. She said a second time, what doest thou here, Elijah? By now, he was starting to feel uncomfortable that she would equate him with God's runaway prophet. And so a third time, he comes to her, and a third time, she says to him, what doest thou here, Elijah? She came in, they had a talk, and he ended up saying, Lord, you know, I will go back into the work. He said, I write, I'm reading from his, these are his words. He said, I was brought by these bare questions to very seriously consider the case of Elijah away from the direct work of the Lord hid in a cave. And he did become a pastor again. Sometimes, though, our geography illuminates our mentality and our thinking in our hearts. And caves are actually popular real estate even for Seventh-day Adventist Christians. There's a cave for everything. There's the cave of discouragement. There is the cave of prejudice. There is a dark cave of unconfessed sin. I mean, we're even guilty of being lukewarm. There's the cave of lukewarmness. And so to all of us, God asks his searching question. What are you doing here? It's not time to be running and hiding in caves. This is not where you belong. I have a work for you to do. You have counted yourself out when I still count you in. And here is a quote. Pray to the Lord Jesus that a holy influence may be brought into your life, an influence which shall subdue every passion, hush every murmuring thought, exalt your affections and purify your heart. Look up, look up, come out of the cave of unbelief and stand with God. Notice what Elijah's response is. And he said, and these words should sound familiar, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
Elijah had traveled in fear for 40 days to come to this place to tell God that he was the last soldier left in uniform, only to be told that there were 7,000 others out there still marching to the drumbeat of eternity. God turns him around and sends him back to work because he had a work for him to do. And friends, God has a work for us to do as we leave this place as well. God has his people everywhere. They may not use our jargon. They may not speak our language, but they know him and Jesus knows them. And that is why he says, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, but them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, that still small voice speaking to them and they will come and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Isaac Newton, the brilliant mathematician and physicist that he was, was asked at the end of his life, what do you consider to be the greatest discovery that you made in your life? He humbly replied and said this, I have made two important discoveries in my life. One, I know I am a very great sinner and two, I know Jesus is an even greater savior. Centuries later, Elijah met that great savior on another mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. There, he and Moses mingled their counsel and encouragement to cheer the Son of God as he faced the greatest mountain in the universe, the greatest mountain in all of human history, a hill called Mount Calvary. It's interesting that God sent both Moses and Elijah to him because both of them had had, had, had breakdowns at the end of the, in, in their lives, which is why God sends them both. Don't give up. Don't give up like we did. You cannot fail. And though you and I may fail, I know Jesus will never fail because one day on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Whenever we feel we're sailed by the darts of the wicked one, run to Jesus, come to Calvary, look up and be reminded that he who was Elijah's strength, Prophets and Kings, page 175, he who was Elijah's strength is strong to uphold every struggling child of his no matter how weak. Fellow Christian, Satan knows your weakness. Therefore, cling to Jesus. Trials will come, but go forward. In no less marked manner will the Lord work now wherever there are hearts of faith to be channels of his power. And so to the church today, I ask you, I let God's word speak to us today and it is this, what are you doing here? I can't answer that question for us personally, but we have to look at this question as a church. What are we doing here? We are God's last day Elijahs with an Elijah message to reach the world. We are the people who find our prophetic roots in Revelation chapter 10, who find our prophetic identity in Revelation chapter 12 and our prophetic mission and message in Revelation chapter 14. Jesus has a call for us. He has commanded us, he's commissioned us to go into all the world. And if God has given us a message to go, we should not stay and stand still. (laughs) And so um, if God, by the way, had answered Elijah's prayer in the wilderness, think about it, he would have died in defeat. Praise God for unanswered prayers. (laughs) 
because God had a much better exit for Elijah planned. He took him to heaven without ever seeing death. And by God's grace, if Jesus comes in our lifetime, we too will have that same experience as well. We will go to heaven when Jesus comes again. And so friends, in closing, as we think on these thoughts, are you abiding? Are you enjoying the abiding friendship of Jesus today? Praise God if you are and keep abiding. Perhaps you find yourself running into a wilderness like Elijah, counting yourself out when God still counts you in. God's word to you today is I still have a work for you to do. I have a calling for you. I, my grace is sufficient for you. And he invites us to come to him and then to go for him because he wants to go with us as well. Why? Because he has 7,000 others out there. They live in your street. They're in our family. They're in our workplace. God has 7,000 out there. What are we doing here? Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the story of Elijah. Times of heroic faith. And here, as we've seen, we see him in his weakness. But Lord, we see that you worked with him in his weakness still. We pray, Lord, that you would work with us, that you would help us to trust you. You would help us to surrender our weaknesses to you so that we can be strong in your strength. We pray, Lord, that you would send us out to the many people that we have in co come in contact with in our family, in our workplace, in our communities, so that we can continue to share the wonderful news of your soon return with others, the everlasting gospel. And one day soon, we believe that you will come again very soon. We look forward to that day with all of our hearts where we won't have to pray with eyes closed, but we will look up and we will see you face to face. Until then, Lord, keep us faithful is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abn Australia all one word dot org dot au Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. some music coming up for you right now from Wintley Phipps with Amazing Grace.
Oh, 
We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Around the same time that Luther was born in a miner's cabin up in Germany, Zwingli was born here in Switzerland in a herdsman cottage high up in the Alps. You see, the leading reformers of that time were men of humble rank, who most of all were free from pride of rank and from the influence of bigotry and priesthood. His father desired for him an education, and at the age of 13, he was sent to the city of Bern to receive one. But whilst he was there, another danger would arise. Because of his intellect, his sharp mind, and his leadership qualities, the monks desired to recruit him. While Luther had gone down that path, he had no desire to go down that path. Neither did his father, and so his father called for him to return home. Zwingli started his ministry in Basel and was ministering around the same time as Luther was, though they were not in communication with each other. God was using each of them individually. If Luther preaches Christ, said the Swiss reformer, he does what I am doing. Those whom he has brought to Christ are more numerous than those whom I have led. But this matters not. I bear no other name than that of Christ, whose soldier I am, and who alone is my chief. Never has one single word been written by me to Luther, nor by Luther to me. And why? That it might be shown how much the Spirit of God is in unison with itself, since both of us, without any collusion, teach the doctrine of Christ with such uniformity. Zwingli was soon called to minister here in Zurich at the cathedral, where he faithfully preached God's word, repelled the sale of indulgences, and spearheaded the Swiss Reformation in the early 16th century. The Church of Rome made several attempts to either end his life or oppose his teachings. When hearing of one particular plot, he replied, let them come on. I fear them as a beetling cliff fears the waves that thunder at its feet. Realizing how little had been gained by trying to suppress Luther's teachings over in Germany, they endeavored to enter into a disputation with Zwingli. The Council of Zurich, though, forbade him to go. And so instead, two of his students went in his place. There they met a host of prelates, doctors, and the champion of Rome, Dr. Eck. Each night, though, Zwingli's students would sneak letters from the city out. And then at night, Zwingli would write letters that would be snuck back into the city. And though he wasn't there, he was able to direct the proceedings that took place. He famously said during that trial, custom has no force in our Switzerland unless it be according to the constitution. Now in matters of faith, the Bible is our constitution. The contrast between the two sides made a clear impression on those who were watching at the time. Zwingli continued to faithfully preach God's word here in Zurich, Switzerland, throughout the rest of his life. God had chosen a humble man from humble origins to begin what would be a great work here in Switzerland.
no matter who you are or where you come from, know that God is able to do great things through you. Whether your beginnings in life have been humble and modest, know God is able to use you mightily. Whether you are educated or uneducated, know that God is able to use you. Here in Switzerland, Zwingli was a man of very humble background, being born in a herdsman cottage up in the Alps, and yet he was used to start a mighty work of reformation here in Switzerland. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, the Bible says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God specializes in doing great things through the weakest vessels. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Exercise. It goes to your head. Hulda was depressed, overweight, sickly, and constantly fatigued. In her 60s and suffering from the loss of her husband, her poor health aggravated her depression. Born in 1896 and reared on a Canadian farm, her diet was rich in meat, milk, cream, butter, eggs, and candy. She began walking to relieve her sadness and set some new records in the process. Between the ages of 65 and 91, Hulda Crooks scaled the 14,500-foot Mount Whitney 23 times. She won eight world athletic records for women over the age of 80 and climbed 86 different Southern California peaks, all over 5,000 feet. Affectionately known as Grandma Whitney, Crooks Peak near Mount Whitney was named in her honor in 1990. Hulda described a typical day in her life at age 80. Early to bed and early to rise. Out jogging about 5.30 a.m. Jog a mile and walk it back briskly. It takes me 12 minutes to jog the mile and 15 minutes to walk it. Do some upper trunk exercises. Work in the yard, walk to the market, and work. At 91, she became the oldest woman to climb Mount Fuji in Japan. She hiked the entire 212-mile John Muir Trail in the High Sierras. She died at 101 without depression. A healthful diet, exercise, faith in God, and a positive mindset proved a winning combination for Hulda. She wrote, I have an abundance of fresh raw fruits and vegetables as well as the cooked kind. You need both a good diet and sufficient exercise. The exercise is absolutely essential in keeping up a good circulation. If we don't exercise, the circulation is sluggish, and that affects the entire body, the mental as well as the rest of the body. She found that being in nature was a tranquilizer for her emotions. She called nature the picture book of the Bible. Hulda believed that mental attitude has so much to do with every function of the body. If we develop an attitude of gratitude for the blessings that we have, we will be much better off. What if she didn't feel like exercising? Hulda replied, Usually, I do it anyway. If the brain is on top, it should be in charge and tell the rest of the body what to do. And so that's what I do. Grandma Whitney showed the world 
that mental, physical, and spiritual health is attainable at any age. Hulda climbed more than mountains. She climbed out of poor health habits and depression into a positive, balanced lifestyle. Do you need to climb mountains in order to obtain the exercise advantage? Actually, a daily regimen of modest exercise has a powerful effect on the mind as well as the body. When you feel better, you think better. Motion balances emotion. Exercise promotes physical health by reducing the risk and progression of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and cancer. But it also improves mood. Students who exercise show lower levels of anxiety, shyness, loneliness, and hopelessness than their less active peers. Moderate, regular exercise improves mood, vigor, psychological well-being, creativity, and self-esteem in all age groups. Regular exercise can reduce symptoms of depression and even alleviate major depression. Exercise reduces stress. A single bout of exercise can be a valuable short-term therapy for reducing tension, depression, anger, and confusion. A 10-minute brisk walk will yield one hour of increased energy and reduced tension, whereas a sugary snack can result in increased fatigue and tension. Moderate-intensity exercise is more beneficial than high-intensity exercise for anxiety reduction. And regular exercise increases the ability to handle stress by lowering stress hormones. Exercise boosts brain power. Exercise stimulates neuronal growth and blood flow in the brain and increases neurotransmitter availability and efficiency. Aerobic exercise improves mental fitness, particularly the ability to plan, coordinate, and filter out distractions. Physical activity enhances learning and memory. It helps children learn better. Brisk walking for 45 minutes three times a week can improve mental processing abilities that normally decline with age. What's the best form of exercise? Well, it's the one you're willing to stick with. Have a plan for every season. Enjoy brisk walking, hiking, jogging, bicycling, swimming, golfing, skiing, or canoeing. Chores such as splitting wood, raking, and gardening provide many health benefits. Keep your gym bag packed and in the car to remind you to go to the gym as part of your work or school day. Work with your health care provider or educator to adopt a plan that will work for you. The Living Word says, Blessed are those that keep my ways, for by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Psalm 8, 32 and 9, 11. From the beginning, God linked exercise with lifestyle and nutrition. God blessed man with exercise as an antidote to many mental and physical maladies, and he will help both improve as you get up and move. Movement creates positive changes in physical, mental, and emotional states. So when you feel down, get up and get moving. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.